We've been looking through uh, the book of Acts ever since Pentecost Sunday, a few Sundays ago. Specifically, we've been looking through Acts 1 and 2. And one of the things that we've been looking at is what happens, what can happen to believers, to a church when the Holy Spirit is moving in that church and moving in the hearts of believers. How does that affect How does that shape the church? What could be? So we're not just looking at a historical study. We're not looking at, oh, this church 2,000 years ago, and wow, look at them. But rather we're asking the question, what could happen today if God's Spirit moves in our hearts? What could we be as a church? And that brings us to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I want you to take out your Bible and open up to Acts And we'll read this together. Uh, They devoted themselves. These are the followers of Jesus. They've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, when you read this from Scripture, um, I don't know about you, but it kind of is inspiring to me. I I enjoy reading that description of the church. Um, One of the reasons why I am in ministry is because of a somewhat similar experience in college when I gathered together with a community of believers and we, we were together very often and we ate together, we studied the Word together, we worshiped together, and uh, I was just deeply changed by that community. How would you like to be a part of that kind of church, that Acts 2 church? Yeah, that's great, um, we might say. But then you know, when you start really examining these habits, that this early church displayed, um, you might actually start second-guessing that a little bit. And as I reflected on this passage over the past couple of weeks, I couldn't help but think of um, how this would play on an episode of Family Feud. Um, So think of that game show, Choose Your Favorite Family Feud Host, and um, imagine uh, examining uh, ranking the description of the early church in its appeal. So, um, we surveyed 100 people. Top answers are on the board. Try to find the most popular answer. Which practices of the ancient church in Acts 2 would you like to keep today? And you slam on the buzzer. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, prayer. Let's see prayer. And it's, you know, ding, it's the top answer. Woo, we want prayer in our church. Next, down the line. How about worship? Worship. It's up there as well. How about reading and studying the Word, the Bible? Ding! It's up there, and on you go down the list, and it gets a little lower, lower, lower in rankings, and then you kind of get to the bottom, and someone then maybe suggests even questions. Uh, How about sharing our possessions with one another? Yeah, good good answer, good answer. And it's way down to the bottom of the list. It doesn't even make the family feud board. Because we're not talking about sharing our possessions like, hey, I need to borrow your lawnmower. Uh, 
can I have it for a few hours? Or, ooh, my car's in the shop. Oh, let me, let me loan you my car. That's not the sharing of possessions that was going on in Acts chapter 2, but rather it was sharing financial needs like, I will sell my stuff to take your, care of your financial need <laughs> so that you can pay your bills. That was the level of sharing in this Acts chapter 2 church. And, and that might not make it on the family feud board, that level of sharing. And there's this question in the context of this list of this early church. Like, they prayed together. That's great. They worshiped together. They, they shared the Lord's Supper in their homes. That's great. This question exists, and it's this. Is sharing of our possessions to meet needs, is that essential today or is it optional today? Is it something that should be normative or normal across all times and all all cultures? Or is this something that was happening in this this one specific time and place in, in the ancient Middle East in the time of Jesus? And it's not necessarily normative or should be normative for us today. So that's the question. And as we answer that question, the first thing we need to realize is that the common sharing of possessions, where did that come from? Well, it came from the fellowship of the church itself. So um, I want to look at the connection between fellowship and koinonia. The word fellowship, you may know as you study the book of Acts, that, that word fellowship is from the Greek word, which is somewhat familiar to Christians, koinonia. And what you need to know about koinonia is the root of it is koine, and that means common. So they did not share fellowship together because they, simply because they liked hanging out with one another. That was not the root of their fellowship. Hey, we like getting together. Let's do it more. That was not the heart of their fellowship, the heart of their fellowship was, was they, they held things in common. Well, what kind of things? Well, certainly at the heart of their commonality was this one faith in Christ. They held that in common. One faith in Christ. They, they held this one experience, transforming experience of God's grace that, that claimed their lives, that, that changed their lives. They held that in common. And out of that commonality, out of that fellowship, they started sharing all of their possessions and having that in common. Now, historically, let's think historically. There are some examples of people that shared the same practice of of giving up all of their possessions and holding it all in common. Uh, John Stott was uh, a noted evangelist and, and church leader and Bible teacher back in 2005, Time magazine named John Stott one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Um, And he wrote a great commentary on the book of Acts. And he reports that at this same time period, right after Jesus, there was this uh, a, a Jewish community, the Essene community, just a couple of miles east of Jerusalem. And as a community, they practiced common ownership of property as a um, as in order to be a candidate for that community, 
part of the ritual was you handing over your, your wealth, your income, and your possessions and holding it in common. Um, much later on in the, ni- in the not 1960s, in the 1600s, the um, Hutterite Brethren community in Moravia, so you may have heard of the Moravians, the church movement, um, they made common ownership a property and a condition of membership in that community. It's kind of interesting. One, probably the most um, familiar or famous name from the Moravians is a fellow named Menno Simon. So Menno, think Mennonites. That's where we get the word, um, the, the name Mennonite church. He was probably the most well-known leader in that community. And he actually said something different. He said that they did not practice this mandatory community of goods and that this practice in Acts 2 of sharing goods was neither universal nor permanent. So it, it wasn't a mandatory practice. It, it was an optional practice. It wasn't universal for them. It was, it was optional. And historically, you might think, think of individuals who were called or chose to give up all of their possessions. So back in the, the 12th century, St. Francis of Assisi, perhaps one of the most famous and influential saints of all time, um, he came from a very wealthy family. And in a religious moment and experience, he chose to give it all up and live a life of poverty. Um, but St. Francis, one of the reasons why he is so well-known and loved is though he lived in poverty, he was just a joyful presence. Um, he was a joyful witness of Jesus Christ. Uh, more recently, you might think of Mother Teresa, who gave up all that she had so she could serve the sick and the, the poor, the least of these living in Calcutta, India. One day, a rich young ruler came up to Jesus, and he asked Jesus about receiving eternal life. You remember what Jesus told him to do to receive eternal life? Jesus told him, uh, you need to... Um, and Luke... Uh, let's see, where is this? I can't remember the scripture. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 33. He says, sell your possessions. Oh, no, he, no, I'm sorry. I gave you the wrong scripture reference. That's later on in Luke that he talks to the rich young ruler. Um, but he tells the rich young ruler, uh, that sell all of your possessions and give to the poor. Um, but it's important to realize that Jesus didn't teach that to everyone. He taught that rich young ruler that. So here's that Luke chapter 12 reference, Luke 12, verse 33. Um, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. But it doesn't say sell all your possessions in Luke 12, 33. It says sell your possessions, give to the poor. You might think of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, after he encountered Jesus and spent the day with Jesus, in response to what God was doing in Zacchaeus's heart, Zacchaeus, what did he say? He said, look, Lord, here and now, I give how much? Half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said, that's great. That's a, that's a very appropriate response 
to what God has done in your life, and salvation has come to your life, Zacchaeus. So for the rich young ruler, Jesus said, give all of your possessions. That's the appropriate response. Zacchaeus said, I'm going to give up half of my possessions. And Jesus said, that's an appropriate response. So what do, we, what do we see in that? We see that God speaks to individuals. God speaks to the heart of individuals about how to use their money and their possessions to live out their Christian faith. That means that we, we need to be thinking individually. God, what are you saying to us? What are you saying to me? What are you speaking to my heart about what I need to, to give away, to be generous with? And if you haven't been asking that question, it's a great question to ask of God. And just to listen over time, what, what God reveals to you. Listen attentively. But if this morning you're worried about me saying, now it's time to lay in our car keys, Put those in the offering plate. Uh, You don't have to worry about that. Because as we look at this scripture, it, um, it doesn't appear, does not appear that this practice of common possession is something essential, universal, a mandatory practice that we must follow, this common ownership of all of our possessions. In fact, if you flip just a few chapters over in, cha- in chapter 4 of Acts, there's this very similar description of the early church. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, says that all the believers were in one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. And, and it seems, again, you see this kind of this universality of, of that practice, but... Look just a few verses later in Acts chapter 5. And we have this story of um, Ananias and Sapphira, this startling story, this husband and wife combo that belonged to the early church. And you may remember that story. Uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 2 says that they sold a piece of property, Ananias and Sapphira, and with his wife's full, on, full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So it was like they sold this piece of property maybe for $50,000, and they took $40,000 of that, and gave it to the apostles and kept 10,000 of the proceeds for themselves. Is there anything wrong with that? No, no, no. The only problem is that Ananias was deceptive about it. He was dishonest about it. And he said that the $40,000 was the full price of the land. He acted as though he had given the apostles all of the proceeds, and he lied about it. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. Peter said to Ananias, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And at that, Ananias fell over dead, and they they dragged his body out, and they they buried him, and few hours later, well, old Sapphira, his wife, comes in. Where's Ananias? Oh, 
he wasn't looking too good. He's probably out lying around somewhere. And, uh, and, and Peter said, Sapphira, tell me, is this the full price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, this $40,000, that was the full price. And Peter said, how could you lie? The men who just got done dragging your husband's dead body out will now carry your body out and bury you as well. And at that moment, she just fell down and died. That's the startling story of Ananias and Sapphira. And we can notice that the problem was not that they kept the extra money for themselves. Peter even said, listen, the money, it's, it was yours to do with as you saw fit. It was your property. When you sold it, you had this money, and you could use that money however you liked. It was yours. It was at your disposal. So it appears that this practice wasn't some first century form of communism. See, communism says that you don't have the right to own property. It's never yours. You, you can't be generous with it because it was never yours in the first place. You don't have that choice. It's not your freedom to choose. That's what communism says. Being generous with it is not a matter of choice, is what communism says. But opposite of that, Peter says, listen, it was yours in the first place. You could have done with it however you saw fit. So what was wrong with Ananias and Sapphira? What's the error to avoid in that story? Well, it was their dishonesty, wasn't it? They were trying to appear one way in the eyes of their brothers and sisters and yet act in another way, appear one way but act in another way. They were being deceptive. They were putting on a show. I think it is rather easy today for people to want to use money to put on a show, to to make this false image to, to make them appear differently than they are, put on a show about themselves. And oppositely, I think it's rather easy for people to fear that a lack of money will also put on a show about them, give a, give a negative show. But in this early church, that wasn't going on. They saw money differently. People did own property, They did have a choice to be generous with it, and they willingly sacrificed it. They saw money much, much differently than a lot of people do today. It was beautiful. So what I want to finish with is um, just look at a couple of things. One, why should we be generous, and how should we be generous? So why should we be generous? One, Jesus teaches generosity. Uh, Jesus had a much different outlook or perspective on money than a lot of people do today. Um, a, a great example of this was when a man came up to Jesus and he told him, tell my brother to share the inheritance, to split, divide up the, the family inheritance with me. And it seems like a kind of a legitimate request, right? I'm, I'm being treated unfairly. Jesus, step in here and get my brother to, to be right with me, do the right thing, give me what is rightfully mine. And Jesus must have sensed something in his heart because here was Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Don't seek wealth to measure your life, to put on a show about your life. 
By hanging tightly onto our wealth and possessions, we perpetuate a fairly individualistic society. I want what is rightfully mine. I want, you know, I, I want to I want to do with it in in my life what I would like. I want to make an appearance, give an appearance of myself to others. I want to do my own thing. You go do your thing and good luck with that. And Jesus was urging. People, don't take that attitude towards money and wealth. Don't see it like that. Don't, don't see that your identity depends on the wealth or the lack of wealth that you have. This leads us to the second reason to be generous, and that is shalom requires generosity. See, when we live in this individualistic way, it, it breaks down the peace that God wants to build in our world. And a couple of Sundays ago, we talked about this, this word shalom, which is another familiar word from the ancient languages of the Bible. And it means peace. But it means more than just individual peace, much more. In fact, it doesn't mean individual peace at all. It means, means collective peace with all of the people. Shalom, we said is the webbing together of God and humans and all creation in justice and fulfillment and delight. You all feel secure together with shalom. So when you look out of the world and you see hungry and lonely and homeless and impoverished people, and you say, it should not be like that. What, what is that? That is your heart calling out for shalom, crying out for shalom. Shalom is not, I've got plenty, my neighbor doesn't have plenty. That is not shalom. Shalom is not, I've got great access to good health care and education and quality of life, but my neighbor doesn't. That's not shalom. Shalom is not, I am safe, but my neighbor is not. That is not shalom. I mean, you can think life is great if it's not great for your neighbor. That is not shalom. And there's a couple scriptures that get right at this. James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Say, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And just to make sure that we don't miss the importance of generosity, here's another scripture, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? It's not a, a changed heart. It's not a transformed heart. And that's our third reason to be generous. Generosity is evidence of a changed heart. I think it was John Calvin who said of this description of this early church in Acts chapter 2. Um, he said, if you are not moved by this scripture to, to live more like this, you really have a hardened heart. See, the scripture is about generosity. That is very contagious. And remember the, the, the last verse in there, 47, that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It was contagious generosity. And yes, in order to be generous to others, that means that we spend sometimes less on ourselves or we enjoy less stuff for ourselves so that we could be generous. In the parallel description of the early church in Acts chapter 4, it says, 
chapter 4, verse 34, 35. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone who had a need. And so we get this picture of the early church. They read the apostles' teaching. They read the scriptures together. And they prayed together, and they shared the Lord's Supper together in, in one another's homes. That's what's meant by the breaking of the bread in that, that scripture. And they praised God together. They did all of this together, and their hearts were then changed together. You see, they didn't just automatically see their positions. Oh, this kind of belongs to us. It didn't happen automatically. It happened as they did this together, as they shared time together, as they grew together, as they grew spiritually together. It changed their attitudes towards their wealth, and all of a sudden they saw their wealth as a tool that they could use to bless others, not as a measuring device for their own worth. And the results of this life, this early church, are revealed in these two wonderful verses in Acts chapter 4. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. There were no needy persons among them. Sounds like this, this perfect, this perfect community. We strive for a perfect community today, and they had it then. There was no needy persons. Why? Because the Holy Spirit worked in their hearts and changed their attitudes about their wealth. So let's talk about how we should be generous. What kind of community must we be in order for the sharing of possessions, which is not universal or uniform in its observance, to naturally feel much more essential. So in other words, it's not a law written on stone, but it becomes a law written on our hearts to be generous and to share. So I want to suggest two words or phrases uh, for us. One, we need to be other-focused. Other-focused? See, there seems to be a connection. The more time they share together, the more possessions they share together. And so it would make logical sense that the less time people spent together, the less generous that they were. So the more time you spend together, the more possessions you share together. Because it's when we are in fellowship that we discover needs, right? We discover, oh, you're in need of this? Let Let me help you. It's in community that we discover that. It's in our relationships. You learn so-and-so is having a hard time financially. Let's, let's help. So we need to recover this value that my life is not about my individual pursuit of happiness, but I am a part of this fabric of shalom that God is building in the world. He wants to build in the world. And so my purpose very much is to look after the needs of others. Very much that is my purpose. That is being other-focused. And we can be other-focused as individuals, but also as a church too, right? As a church, we can be other-focused. We can pool our generosity together so that we can build God's kingdom, help God build his kingdom right here, right here in the Clear Lake area of Houston. We can do that as a church. And, and notice that discovering needs, it's not automatic. It, 
And you've probably had the experience where you've spent a few hours with someone, you know, just chit-chatted, a little small talk. Um, and the conversation might seem like it gets yeah, about an eighth of an inch below the surface, and you don't really get to know that person. And you feel like, oh, I, I don't know him or her any more than I knew before. And so, therefore, another word for us, we need to be transparent. Verse 46 of Acts 2 say that they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And that word for sincere, it's, it's an odd word. I looked all throughout the, Old, the New Testament about the word sincere. When, when is the word sincere used? And uh, this is the only time that it appears with this, this, this term, this certain term. And the certain term literally means not stony ground. So everywhere else, everywhere else in, the, in the New Testament where you see the word sincere, it's, it's usually a translation of not hypocritical. Uh, that's what the Greek word would mean, not hypocritical. But here it means not stony ground. Isn't that an odd term? Without rocks in the ground. In other words, it's smooth. There's nothing underneath the surface. They were transparent. In their hearts, they weren't hiding anything beneath the surface. They weren't using their money or their lack of money to define who they were, right? Income status wasn't a barrier to their relational status. People weren't envious of one another. And one reason was that the needs of every person was met. See the key there? When everyone's needs are met, it breaks down that that money barrier that can exist between people. How do you achieve this? Well, you make someone else the treasure of your heart. And of course that is Jesus. Jesus became poor so that you could become rich. Jesus gave up his life so that you could have it all. Jesus says, all that is mine, it is yours. Jesus gave up his status as the supreme Lord of all, the universe, over the universe, so he could come and so that he could serve you, so he could serve us. He shares what is his with us. Jesus is the treasure of our heart. And when Jesus is the treasure of your heart, you see your money and your possessions much differently. You know, there's been a lot of talk these last few weeks about um, the need to level the playing field or the, the need to, to fix this great imbalance of wealth that we see in our country between the really rich and the really poor. And there's all kinds of different answers out there, and you can choose which one you want to disagree with, <laughs> which one you want to agree with. That's up to you, but let me tell you one thing. This is what I know. I know this. The leaders of sharing should be the church, should be Christians, followers of Jesus. We should be the most caring, most generous, most willing to meet a need. Because of anyone, we should be the most able to let go of this misplaced meaning that people so often give to money on what it says about them as a person and their identity. What is your identity? You are a beloved son or daughter 
of Christ, the King. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you make all of your promises a yes to us in Christ. We do not have to worry about doing without in life. You are generous, and then you put us in a very generous family. And as we live towards being very Christ-like in our giving and in our generosity, we pray, Lord, that you would build your shalom, that, that we would feel at rest, that more and more we feel secure, and that you would grow that shalom, that peace that touches everyone around us. We build that here. We do that here in our lives. Help us to give up what can be like a, a stranglehold on our money, our wealth. Yes, we're free to do with it as we please. Yes, and thank you, Lord, for freedom. And Lord, may we, as Scripture tells us, not to use our freedom for our own self-interest, but rather self-interest, but rather use our freedom to be a blessing. Use our freedom to serve one another. Use our freedom to love our neighbor as ourself. For we are deeply loved, deeply loved by you our Lord and our God. Amen. Please join us now in singing our final song about the goodness of God.